this evening. Mark chapter 16, then we'll be going to uh, John chapter 20. If you want to get a head start on us and, and already set yourself to be prepared to go there. Mark chapter 16, verse 9, speaking of Jesus' uh, resurrection, it says, Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that they and she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. I want you to get that. Now it tells us about Jesus appearing to two other guys. Uh, skip down with me to um, 12 verse 14. It says, Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Now, uh, it doesn't matter if you turn there or not. You can if you want to. But in Mark chapter, uh, Matthew, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 16, it tells us how that um, Jesus after, well, let me just read it. Didn't think I was going to go there, but I think I need to. Matthew chapter 16, this is where Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And some of them respond, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he says, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds to that and says, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. But following that, I want you to see what takes place. Following that, it says in verse 20, Matthew 16, verse 20, then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. You know, I think everybody has the idea, I know I used to, that, uh, that the disciples went around telling everybody that Jesus was the Messiah, and that's the reason that they were able to do miracles and so forth. But Jesus did not send them out to tell about him being the Savior. It's just not what he was sending them to do. So here it says that he forbids them from telling others that he is the Christ. Notice verse 21, Matthew 16, verse 21. It says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples. Another uh, translation says, plainly teach unto his disciples. How that he must go un unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. One of the reasons Jesus upbraids his disciples for their hardness of heart and refusing to believe in, uh, in the case of Mark 16, Mary Magdalene, who was the first one to see him alive, is because he clearly told them to do this. He clearly told them what was going to happen. He clearly gave them information so that they could stand in faith. Now turn with me over to John chapter 20. We'll pick up with John's account of, uh, of the resurrection Verse 19, it said, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for or because of their fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Now I'm going to skip down a little bit to verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, 
and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And again, eight days after eight days again with his disciples, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus and the doors were shut. Jesus stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless. Get that phrase. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Now notice there's no blessing attached whatsoever to Thomas's position. Thomas had to see and feel. He had to have physical evidence before he was willing to believe. And notice he didn't say, I cannot believe. He said, I will not believe. Folks, I want you to understand something. Faith or believing is a choice. It's not an automatic response because you have a, a great knowledge of the word. They had knowledge of what Jesus was going to Jerusalem for. They had knowledge that Jesus would be killed and raised again the third day. He told them. He clearly told them. He wanted them prepared, but they didn't believe. Faith is a choice. Turn with me over to um, Matthew chapter 9. Verse 27, and when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, saying, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was coming to the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? And they said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. But they told anyway. I want you to notice something. There's a lot of scripture that we can look at. I'm not sure how much of it we will. But there are many, many instances where the Bible tells us that faith or belief is a choice. It's not an automatic response. It's a choice. It's a determination of your will. Now, folks, you know as well as I do that in the world we live in, people believe crazy things. Things that have no basis in truth. But they choose to believe whatever they believe. They choose to believe whatever doctrine, whatever theory, whatever foundation for their faith they claim to have. Faith is always a choice. Look with me to Mark chapter 9. I love this story. It shows, in my opinion, it shows God's willingness to reach out to his people. Mark chapter 9, verse 14, And when Jesus came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question you with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foams with his, and gnashes with his teeth. And pineth away, and I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Please notice it says they could not. It doesn't say they wouldn't. It says they couldn't. Well, that implies an attempt and failure, doesn't it? How would they know that they couldn't unless they tried and, and wasn't uh, successful? They tried to cast this evil spirit out. Now, Jesus has already given them authority to, to uh, heal every manner of sickness and disease and to cast out devils. 
There's no question that Jesus has already delegated the, the necessary power or anointing of God to take care of what they need, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They ran up on a situation where they were unable to minister deliverance to this little boy. So I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He, Jesus, answered him. Please notice that Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. I want you to notice that Jesus is calling the Father faithless, not his disciples. Now, you may know the rest of the story. After everything is over, they asked, they, the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't do it. And in one account, it says, one of the gospel accounts say that Jesus answered and said, because of your unbelief, how be it fasting and prayer is the only thing that breaks the hold of this kind. In this case, this gospel account, he says the same thing about fasting and prayer, but he doesn't say anything about their unbelief. So they brought him, when Jesus said, bring him unto me, they brought him unto him, they brought the boy unto him, and when he saw him straightway, the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. And oftentimes it cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I want you to see his question. His question is, is your power sufficient to help? Can you do something about this? Can you help my son? Can you deliver him? Your disciples can't. Can you deliver my son? And Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. So this had to take place for a few moments at least. It had to take place long enough for the people that were there, however many people took this position. But it says, Howbeit some of them said, or many is the phrase that's used. Many said he is dead. He's got to be uh, immobile or motionless for a few seconds anyway. Maybe longer. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast him out? And he said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Now I want you to notice something. We saw in Thomas' case... We saw that when Jesus appeared the second time under the disciples and Thomas was there, Jesus gives him the opportunity to put his fingers in the print of the nails that were still in the nail holes that were still in his wrist. He gave him an opportunity to thrust his hand into his side. And remember what he said. He said, and be not faithless, but believing. Remember the only reason Thomas had taken that position is because he said himself, he decided. Nobody prompted him, nobody influenced him. He's not being led of the Lord to do it. He just simply says, unless I see and feed him, I will not believe. So Jesus appears to him and gives him the opportunity. And Thomas goes from being faithless to believing in Jesus and becoming part of the family of God. How did this father go from being faithless? And, and look it up in every translation you want. Go back to the original transcript or manuscripts if you want to. It's clear and it's accurate. When it says that Jesus addressed the father 
and said that he was part of a faithless generation. What changed this father from not being able to get any results to deliverance for his son? It was a pretty quick switch. Now, as I said before, Jesus has delegated to his disciples authority to cast out evil spirits. So there's no question that they had the ability to do it. Something, however, was causing a problem, and the power of God didn't flow into the little boy and deliver him. Jesus identifies that as a lack of faith or faithlessness on the part of the father. Apparently, this boy is still young enough to be under his father's authority. If not, it wouldn't have had anything to do with his father's faith. It would have been his own faith, the, the boy himself, that would be the important factor. How does this father go from being faithless to having enough faith to see his boy delivered? There's only one thing that changed. Jesus didn't change. The power of God didn't change. The only thing that changed is what the man said. That's the only thing that changed. Let me show you another example. Turn with me to Matthew 21. Let's back up a little bit. Well, no, I don't have time to do that. Notice in Matthew 21, verse 32, it says, For John came, this is Jesus speaking about John the Baptist. He said, For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. And you, when you had seen it, repented not afterward, that you might believe him. Here he's talking about somebody or a group of people that chose to believe John's preaching. As contrasted with a group of people that chose not to believe in John or the things that he preached. What made the difference? A choice. The only thing that makes a difference is a choice. Folks, the Bible tells us over and over and over again that faith is available to them that will, to them that choose. And believing is as simple as making the choice. You know, there's sometimes when uh, we might feel about ourselves that we're not strong in faith, in times like that, when I face times like that, I always say, I choose to believe. I choose to believe. Because it's not how you feel about what you believe. It's a choice. It's a choice. You remember the story of the woman with the issue of blood. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Now, you remember when she touched Jesus' garment, he felt power go out of him. Or he knew. Literally, the, the word that's used there in the Greek is uh, that he knew, he recognized that power went out of him. She felt in her body that power go into her and heal her of the plague. They both were conscious of something, whether it was literal feelings or whether it was just knowledge. There's no way to identify. But both of them were aware of something that took place. But remember, Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? You remember what the disciples said? The disciples answered and said, Master, the multitude throngeth thee, and sayest thou who touched me? In other words, he's saying, the disciples are saying, everybody's touching you. How are we going to identify one person 
What one person are you looking for? Everybody touched you. Well, if everybody's touching him, there's got to be a reason why they're trying to. There's got to be a reason why this throng, this multitude of people are, are pressing in, moving people out of the way, shoving people around, trying to get to Jesus to touch him. Why would that be? Well, everywhere else Jesus goes and Jesus touches people or people touch him, healing power or deliverance takes place. And if they hadn't heard of Jesus, they wouldn't be in this multitude in the first place trying to get to him. So they've heard similar, if not the same things, that the woman with the issue of blood heard. They've certainly heard of the miracles that are taking place. They've certainly heard that Jesus is doing great and mighty things. I don't for a minute believe that this woman with the issue of blood was the only sick person in this crowd. There may be other sick people that were even more critical. Their conditions were even more critical than the woman with the issue of blood. But Jesus recognized that one person and only one person drew power out of him in that crowd at that, at that, uh, on that occasion. Only one person. Why? Because she chose to believe. That means of all the multitude, however many people are there, however many people are touching him, pressing in to, to get close to him, however many people those were, there's not one other soul that chose to believe. Now clearly they want something to happen. Otherwise, why touch him? They're looking for some kind of result, but they're not looking at as a result of their faith. They may be giving God a try. Well, we've heard a lot about this Jesus guy. We've heard about miracles and things that are taking place. Let's touch him and see what happens. Well, they saw. Nothing happened except for the one woman that reached out and touched him in faith. You remember what Jesus said in verse 34? After he hears the story, she falls down before him and tells him all the truth. He said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Your faith has made you whole. How do we know she had faith? Well, remember in verse 25, for she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. How do you make the choice to believe? How do you choose to believe? You speak. Look with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Notice verse 8. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it, meaning faith, along with the plan of salvation, along with God's redemptive work. But the faith that you're saved through is the gift of God. Now, if God's giving you something, that means he has to have it before he gives it to you, right? God, God can't give you anything that he doesn't have. And here it says that he gives us a gift called faith. Look with me over to Romans chapter 12. Let me show you what else the Bible says about this thing called faith. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, it says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Notice it says that faith is given, faith for salvation, which is the same faith to receive anything and everything from God, is a gift. God gives it to us. Here it says he deals to us, unto us, the measure of faith. Romans 10, 17, you know that, I'm sure, without having to turn to it. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. You've got three different examples. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Faith is a gift. Faith is dealt by God in a measure. 
And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Now here's the question. If God's dealing faith to you and me, if faith is a gift that brings us into the finished work of Jesus and into the family of God, and if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, what kind of faith is given, is dealt, and comes? Well, since it comes from God, he's the originator of it. Since it comes from God, it has to be the God kind of faith. It has to be the same faith God has. Mark eleven twenty two. you remember that when Jesus is talking about and explaining why the fig tree or how the fig tree dried up from the roots when he cursed it the day before. He says, have faith in God. The literal translation of that from the original transcripts is have the faith of God. Well, what kind of faith would God have other than the God kind of faith? The Bible tells us in Hebrews that we know through faith God created the world. Well, what kind of faith did God use to create the world? The only kind of faith God has, which is the God kind of faith. And folks, when, we're, when the Bible tells us that we've been made in the image and the likeness of God, an exact duplicate in kind is literally what that means. When it says that we have been made in the likeness and the image of God, that means God's plan, God's intent, God's system has been set up and never will be changed. The system that he set up was for you to use the faith that he gave us in the same way that he uses it. How did God use it? How did God use his faith? He spoke the world into existence. He said, let there be light. He brought forth the animals through the words that he spoke. He made the stars in the sky and made the moon and the sun. He separated the night from the day, all through words. Genesis chapter 1 tells us 10 times that God said something and it was. 10 times, 10 specific different things. That would have been a whole lot easier and a whole lot more concise for him to just say, and I spoke the world into existence. And we would understand that that means everything that's here came as a result of God speaking. But God didn't do it that way. God tells us again and again and again and again and again, 10 separate times that God said and it was so. That God said and it was so. Do you think he's trying to get us to learn something? Do you think maybe he's trying to teach us something? His faith, the God kind of faith, Jesus specifically identifies it again in Mark chapter 11. Have the faith of God, for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say. First thing he says about that is say. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. Turn with me to Mark eleven twenty three. I want you to see this for yourself. Again, I'll start in verse 22. Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God or have the faith of God. Somebody coined the phrase, have the God kind of faith, and it would have to be accurate because the God kind of faith is the only kind of faith that God would have. So Jesus defines what that faith is or explains how that faith works. Verse 23, for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. I want you to notice something about that verse. I want you to notice that the word say in some form is in that verse three times, and the word believe is there only once. 
Anybody think that's a coincidence? Let's count them. Jesus said, for verily I say unto you, this is just what he's prefacing to be said, so that one doesn't count. That whosoever shall say, there's one time for say in some form. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. There's one time for say and one time for believe. But shall believe that those things which he saith, there's say in some form the second time. But shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. There's say in some form, one form, three times in Mark eleven twenty three, and believes only there once. You know where everybody works on? The part of the equation that everybody works on? The believing part. The believing part. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, inspired by the Holy Ghost, we having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken, we also believe, and therefore speak. The Bible says you have the same spirit of faith as God himself. Based on the scriptures we've looked at, the measure of faith that's been dealt to us by God, the faith that's a gift of God, and the faith that cometh by hearing is the same faith that God used to create the worlds. And Jesus said it'll move mountains if it needs to, if you require it. The same faith. You know how the Bible says, it says it in different ways in several different places. But it says God's not a man that he could lie, neither the son of man that he would repent. He said, has I spoken it and shall I not make it come to pass? Have I said it and shall I not make it good? Everything about God's word is for one purpose and only one purpose. And that is this. God spoke his word for us to know what he will do for us when we exercise the same spirit of faith as he has. That's the only reason we have the word of God, folks. It tells us who we are in Christ because of what Jesus did for us. It tells us the will and the plan and the purpose of God. It reveals to us what Jesus did for us on the cross and through his death, burial, and resurrection. It provides, well, in the Old Testament, it provided promises. They're really not promises now because they've been fulfilled through Jesus. But the Old Testament identified promises unto the people of God. The New Testament tells us what the people of God have obtained because of Jesus' finished work. This is a, there's a lot wrong with this illustration. I'm the first one to admit it. There's a lot wrong with this illustration. But I don't know how to bring out a point otherwise, in any other way than to say it this way. If God could lie, and he can't, he never will, never can. But God can't lie not because he's just of such integrity that he won't. He really can't. He really can't lie. Because anything God says will come to pass. So if God said the lie, the lie would become the truth. Now, I know there's a lot wrong with that statement, but do you see the point? Every word of God shall be fulfilled, shall come to pass. This is kind of the same thing or very similar to the same thing that Jesus said 
when he was casting out devils and the Jewish leaders accused him of casting out devils by the power of the devil. They said he casts out devils by Beelzebub. You remember what Jesus answered? Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And if Satan is casting out Satan, everybody knew the evil spirits were from Satan. Nobody blamed God for that in their day. But Jesus said, if Satan casts out Satan, if he undoes his own work, how can his kingdom stand? Well, the same thing's true for God. God can't make people sick and heal them at the same time. He can't be working both sides of the street when it comes to sickness and disease. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. So what makes the difference in a person choosing to believe and refusing to believe what they say you make your choice to believe by saying you make your choice to believe by the words that you speak turn with me over to Luke chapter 17 Luke chapter 17 I want you to see this I really don't understand why the church stumbles over this so so much I understand the devil's working overtime to make people confused about the situation or about the issue or about how to use your faith. And it's, it's really a sad thing to recognize that millions of Christians, maybe the majority of Christians, never even think about using their faith for anything other than to get saved. The faith that they use which is the gift of God that leads them into the family of God, brings them into the family of God. That's the last time a lot of people, a lot of Christians will ever use their faith. That's sad. Because they're passing up on so much of what Jesus did for us. Jesus, we won't read the whole, whole thing here, but Jesus is talking about if your brother or somebody sins against you seven times and repent seven times, forgive them. If you put that together with another gospel writer, there, Jesus talks about seven times 70. So either one you want to accept as the, uh, as the basis for this teaching, it's talking about somebody that's doing you wrong over and over and over again to such a degree that we might think that we can't keep forgiving. So the disciples respond to what Jesus said in Luke 17, 5. The apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Now, folks, I rail on these guys, gave them a hard time a lot of times. You know that I, I pick at things for the sake of revealing how we're supposed to operate and so forth. But this time, these guys are doing some great work here. They said, Lord, increase our faith. That shows that they understood, unsaved men understood way more than most Christians ever will. That you don't forgive by feelings, you forgive by faith. And faith is always a choice always so the apostles said lord increase our faith and the lord said verse 6 if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed you might say unto this sycamine tree be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted into the sea and it should obey you notice where it says if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed you might say he's not changing the subject they're saying we need greater faith now faith is measurable we see that God dealt to us, each one of us, a measure of faith. But that faith is supposed to be fed and exercised. 
Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said that uh, commended them because their faith was growing exceedingly. Well, that has to mean that faith can grow. Jesus talked about people with little faith. He recognized a couple of people that had great faith. So faith is measurable. There are stories that we could tell about a lot of different people that started off believing God and the most they could believe God for was a small amount in the beginning. George Muller is one of those individuals. He had an orphanage in Bristol, England around the turn of the century. And he said this, he wound up being responsible for the care of over 2 million kids, orphans, over his lifetime. He didn't have a church, he didn't have a pastorate, he didn't have anything that he could send out as a newsletter. He just simply had to believe God for the money. And he said this, he said, when I first started out, he said it was all I could do to believe God for a shilling or a pound or whatever the form of money was that they used. He said, but after 50 years of feeding my faith daily on God's word, he said, I can believe God for a million as easy as I could in the beginning believe for one. So there's no question that we can develop it and strengthen ourselves in our confidence in God. No question about that. But Jesus says, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, well, what's a grain of mustard seed? A grain of mustard seed is not sufficient to do any job until it gets planted. And then if it's cultivated, if it's taken care of, if it's nourished, then eventually it'll turn into something that'll provide anything and everything that you need. So when Jesus says, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say, you see that word might there in the King James? It's the word would. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say. You will say. Look at all the people in Jesus' ministry that he identifies their faith either through their words or their actions. You remember the story about the four guys that brought their friend in on the, the crippled guy? Brought their friend who was crippled. Tried to get him into the meeting where Jesus was and it was packed with people, religious leaders and so forth. So they went up on the roof, tore through the roof and let him down by ropes. You remember that? It says that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. Then he has a conversation with the Jewish leaders there that are all bugged out about him forgiving sins. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? They were right. But Jesus identifies that it's the same power that forgives sins that heals sickness. He said that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, arise and walk, and he did. Well, what did Jesus see about their faith? He saw the action of letting this guy down in the midst of the crowd. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us so, but it tells us that the house was full of people and it was packed out. So maybe when this guy starts coming down from the hole in the roof, everybody else has to step back and make room. But here's a question for you. Is there any way that any intelligent person could possibly think that these four guys are carrying this crippled guy around without having a conversation about what they're doing? Is there anybody that by any stretch of the imagination would think that the four guys were taking the crippled guy against his will? There would be no basis to think that, would there? I mean, it doesn't say when the four guys couldn't get in, they took him on the roof and made a hole and let him down amidst the crippled guy's screamings. Don't drop me, don't drop me, don't drop me. 
when Jesus saw their faith, what he's seeing is the result of the faith that they've exercised that brought them to the house to begin with. So when it says Jesus saw their faith, he sees that they believe something enough to agree to bring this crippled guy into the house and take unusual, at the very least, steps to get him in. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say. If you have faith, you will say. You remember the story of the 12 spies that went into the promised land to spy out the land. Ten of them came back with what the Bible calls an evil report. What was it? It was a report of doubt. It was a confession. We can't do it because of the people and the strength of the armies and the height of the walls. Caleb and Joshua saw the same things the other ten saw. And they simply chose to believe. How do we know they chose to believe? Because they said. Caleb said, we're well able to take it. God's with us. We are well able to overcome them. Joshua said, don't rebel against the Lord. He's on our side. Well, is it news that he's on their side? Is that new revelation that only they had and the ten spies didn't have? God's been saying all along, I'll be on your side. It was God on their side that delivered them for Pharaoh after he tried to chase them into the Red Sea. God being with them is not a surprise. You can go through the Old Testament and find all the places where Moses told them because God told him about the Amalekites and the Canaanites and all the Hittites and all the rest of them that were in this promised land. Finding out that there are people there with walls around their city shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody. God's told them that over and over and over again. So the reports, the evil report, and the two that got what they said, Caleb and Joshua, that were delayed by 40 years because of the unbelief of the others. But everybody in that story got exactly what they said. Everybody got what they believed. How do we know what they believed? Because of what they said. How do we know what you believe? By what you say. How can we identify what somebody believes? Same thing, same way Jesus did. The blind guy that we looked at that came into the house, Jesus didn't even stop for him. He followed on behind the group, the caravan, whoever it was that was with Jesus at the time. He comes into the house and Jesus asked him, do you believe I'm able to do this? How'd the guy believe that he was able to do it? He had to have heard something. He's calling out the whole time, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David is a messianic term. Whenever people cried out and said son of David, they were recognizing that Jesus was sent from God as the Savior. And Jesus asked, do you believe that I'm able to do this? What if the guy lied? What if he hesitated and thought, well, gee, I never expected him to ask me that. You know what? It wouldn't have mattered if he had. Because no matter how he felt, no matter what things looked like, when he said, yes, Lord, I believe, that's his choice to believe. Just like it is yours and mine. Choose to believe. Choose to accept God's word. No matter what the circumstances no matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like. Smith Wigglesworth talked about 
the way that we feel in this way. He said, when I feel strong in faith, that's when I'm the weakest because I'm relying on my feelings. He said, when I feel weak in faith, that's when I'm the strongest because I have nothing to stand on except God's word. Choose to believe. There's not one promise God's made to you that you're not able to believe. Here where it tells us, and we looked earlier about Jesus upbraiding the disciples because they didn't believe what he had told them about being killed in Jerusalem and rising again the third day. Jesus' response seems to indicate to me that he expected that they should believe. That he expected that they should believe. Why would he expect that? Nobody has ever arisen after three days outside of what Jesus did for Lazarus. We don't have any record whatsoever of anything of the sort happening. There's the story in the Old Testament about the guy that was thrown in on Elijah's grave. Or Elisha's grave, I guess it would be. Elijah went up into heaven in the whirlwind. But nobody outside of what Jesus did for Lazarus has been three days dead and then returned. So granted, at least up until the time that they saw what happened with Jesus and Lazarus, granted that it would have been a stretch. There would have been a lot of reasons for the disciples to say, well, this is crazy. Nobody's ever done that before. But Jesus expected them to believe. You've got the same spirit of faith. It's the same spirit of faith. It may not be the same measure, but it's the same spirit of faith that God created the worlds with. And that's why the Bible says, with God nothing is impossible, and with them that believe nothing is impossible. Because it's the same spirit of faith. How do we know it's the same spirit of faith? Paul says, because of what we say. We having the same spirit of faith as it is written, we believed and therefore speak. We believe and therefore speak. The most impossible things that we can imagine are within our grasp when we understand that it's the same measure of faith that we use that God has himself. Your faith will move mountains. Your faith will change whatever you need it to change. Your faith will work every time. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We choose to believe. We choose to believe that everything you told us is true. We choose to believe that we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. We choose to believe that we have a measure of the, world, of the same faith that created the worlds. We choose to believe that we have a measure of the mountain-moving faith. And therefore, we declare, based on your word, it doesn't matter what we feel like, doesn't matter how things look, based upon your word, nothing is impossible with us. Even as you said, Jesus. Nothing's impossible for the God kind of faith to bring results. Whether it's faith that's exercised by God himself or faith, the same spirit of faith that we exercise in our own lives. Thank you, Father, for making the impossible a reality through faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.